getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Char Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. If you are an SLP and have ever experienced an uncomfortable, contentious parent meeting where maybe it was directed at you or maybe it wasn't, you're not alone. Most of us have. And it's no fun. Early in my career, my first response was to crawl under the table. I didn't, just so you know, but I wanted to. And right then, I knew that I needed to toughen up and learn how to deal with difficult situations. So grab a pen and a really big piece of paper. I'm sharing with you what has worked for me. Most of us would agree that we are living in challenging times, which can result in frustrations, which could erupt in contentiousness. Now, what does that mean? Some of us humans get quarrelsome, argumentative, or downright combative. We speech-language pathologists are in a helping profession. We rarely experience this type of behavior, but if we ever do... We need to be ready to respond appropriately and professionally. Now, following are five objectives that I want to cover that will hopefully be helpful for you, and they're in no particular order. One, how to avoid a confrontation, a power struggle. It's never good for you, the speech-language pathologist, SLP, the parent or caregiver, but mostly it's never good for the child. Perceptions of the parents can influence the child's perceptions. Two, how to prepare your mindset, your internal state, your place to come from before and during a contentious situation. Three, how to observe and determine what the parent is really saying or what he or she really wants, non-verbally and verbally. Four, how to respond professionally and stay flexible in your response. How to be cognitively aware and rational during the confrontation. We'll learn critical communication components. The words that we use are vocal characteristics, facial expressions, and body language. Like our kids, our intonation and and facial body expressions can be easily misunderstood. And number five, more positively, how to build an effective working relationship with parents where differences of opinion are okay when there's mutual admiration and support. Just so you know, I am a speech-language pathologist and was in the schools for many years and had a private practice and taught at a university for a while. And over the decades, I experienced a few negative parent comments that were actually made to my face (laughs) or parent confrontations. There were a few, and the ones I did have, I didn't like. Personally, I'm more introverted. Professionally, I've learned to be more extroverted. I like to have a sense of accomplishment, and I like to contribute to improving someone else's life. Probably, like most of you, I don't do what I do to receive huge accolades and appreciation. Although, probably, like you, it's nice to hear when it comes my way. I want to work with kids. 
Meetings and paperwork are not high on my list of desirable things to do, but I know they are necessary, and I've tried to systematize them as much as possible, but that's, that's kind of another podcast. So when someone in my immediate professional world says something disparaging, I have to say, the words cut straight through me and set me back on my heels. In the past, I'm sure that I reacted emotionally and thought, and, and I do remember thinking back when I was in the schools, don't they know that I work hard for them, that I'm constantly trying to learn new ways to help them, that I care? Don't they know that I get up at five, do all the family stuff I need to do, leave the house at seven and drive like a maniac through heavy traffic for a half hour to make it to school so I can do a little prep? talk to teachers, and knock out some paperwork. (laughs) I have many decades of experience behind me. So here is the core issue as I see it. The reality is negative comments, not just concerned or helpful comments said by parents or teachers or an administrator, usually come from people that we don't have a mutually working relationship with. An effective working relationship is when we accomplish things together. Those that you do not have an effective working relationship with don't know at least three important things about you. And this works both ways. They don't know your heart and how you truly desire to contribute to others' welfare, your competency level, or your work ethic. Now, as we go through this, there's a lot of information here Semantically, I'm going to narrow down the field to just parents, grandparents, guardians, and caregivers, and not necessarily teachers and administrators, although much of this applies to them too. And for the parents and grandparents, etc., I'm going to use the word parent. It can be a male or female, but I'm going to focus on interacting with a woman, and when appropriate, I'm going to call her Marie. The next 50 minutes or so are organized into five topic sections. One, reputation and specific communications to others, two, our mindset, three, nonverbal communications by the parent and yourself, four, verbal communications, and five, the process of building positive professional relationships. And this is something we pursue over time. It's not immediate. So let's jump in. Here's section one, reputation and specific communications. I want to clarify and emphasize a couple very important things right up front. Here is one. Your reputation precedes you. It is important for teachers and administrators to know what we do. So why does that matter? Because you and I are part of the school team, and we want to be viewed as such. And frankly, I want the teachers and administrators to be aware of my heart a sense of my competency and my work ethic. And this translates into reputation and support during eligibility and IEP meetings, as well as many other benefits. But the onus is on us to share that information at appropriate times with teachers and administrators tactfully. Here are a couple of suggestions that I've done through the years And I have to say, I didn't just start off doing these things. They didn't come naturally for me either, but I saw the need and learned to do them over the years. Here's what I'm talking about. At the beginning of every school year, and this is primarily when we're doing all our jobs in person, although it could be done online, 
visit each teacher in his or her room for a few minutes, alone. If the person is a new teacher or if you are new, smile and introduce yourself and find a commonality. For example, comment on specifics about the appearance of his or her room. Oh, you have a word wall. Very helpful for the kids. In speech and language, we work on words too, blah, blah, blah. And you proceed to explain some things that you do. And I say something like, boy, I hope I have a student from your room. Let them see you as part of the team, an approachable person and someone who goes out of your way to meet them and to get to know them. That goes a really long way. If you already know the teacher, still go into their room and talk something professional or even a personal situation that you know about. Like maybe they have a, a son or daughter in the military or a new baby or a grandchild, etc. And say, I hope we get to work together this year. Remember last year? Oh my gosh, we made such great progress with Jose, etc. I know all of this takes time. Typically, I didn't make my rounds in all in, all in one day. If I happened to pass Mrs. Brown's room and she was alone, I went in. I tried to do my visits within the first week or two. I had a check sheet to make sure I spoke with everyone. It opens doors of communication, referrals, and discussions about our mutually uh, about our mutual kids, as well as familiarity and trust at meetings. Okay, that's zooming in individually. Now let's zoom out to the group as a whole. Ask your principal for a few minutes, maybe 10 to 15 minutes of time, at an early in the year staff meeting. After you introduce yourself and express how happy you are to be there, etc., I would recommend sharing at least three things. And you may want to have a handout for them to follow along as you talk. If you just give them a printed handout, they may not read it. Make sure you all are on the same page. Bottom line, at least three things. Share the types of children you work with with a couple of example characteristics. The referral process. Does it go through your school psych or through you? What form do you use, etc.? If you have an RTI process or student study team or whatever you do. And then the last one is the qualification process. Just because a child is referred doesn't mean they automatically qualify. Emphasize there are federal, state, and district legal qualification standards, and you must adhere to them. Let them know. You would see every child if you could, but that's not possible. Let them know you are fair and flexible within the criteria you have to adhere to. Let them see that you care, see your heart, and that you know your stuff, your competency level, and your work ethic. Your reputation precedes you. In addition to our reputation, there's another area that's not frequently talked about, and I've honestly never really liked talking about it either, and that is education levels. There are many teachers that have a bachelor's degree, not a bachelor's, master's degree. There are parents that have a bachelor's or less. Some lack a high school diploma. Maybe it's because I do have an advanced degree, or maybe it's because my mother raised me right, or maybe I'm just naive. But I always looked at people as people, looked at their personality, their character, their values. However, it is a fact that some people judge other people based on their education degree. 
This human frailty came to light for me early on as a therapist. It was after an eligibility meeting, and some people had left, including the principal and the school psychologist, who had an arrogant side to him, but he knew his stuff. So there was the parent, the teacher, and myself. The parent said in reference to the school psychologist, he's got his master's degree, so he thinks he's hot stuff. (laughs) Well, I thought, well, I've got my master's degree, too. (laughs) Thanks to a quick-thinking teacher, she responded with a semi-joke. She said as she stood up, and I followed suit, well, that's not all he's got. And we kind of knew what she meant, and we laughed and went our separate ways. We avoided a potential situation. In the same vein, fast forward later on in my professional years, I started a seminar and products company called Speech Dynamics, and I read a very valuable book called Business Think, and it's in the references. In this book, Markham Smith and Kalsa stated, Arrogance consumes everything and everybody in its path. Ego has no pleasure other than superiority over others, their ideas, worth, position, and value, and that usurps anything meaningful. Hmm. End quote. Ego, above all, is most dangerous. Your reputation is golden, and again, your reputation precedes you. People talk. The janitors talk. Teachers talk. Parents, kids, and they all talk. (laughs) Maybe it's your first time meeting a parent. Maybe they know nothing about you, but usually they know what they've heard about you. That's just the way it is. Therefore, at all times, be professionally friendly and kind to all. Smile, acknowledge everyone, and treat everyone with the same respect. Be confident in what you do. Project confidence in what you do but temper it with humility and appreciation for others' views as well. And by the way, when I was in the schools, I always, always, always made it a point to never talk about anyone, another teacher, a specialist, or a parent, unless it was positive. If another teacher starts to talk about another teacher, (sighs) just look at my watch. Oh, oh, I'm late for blah, 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 and I'd get out of there. Section 2, Mindset. Develop your pre-confrontation mindset. It can be helpful to think about what you would do to say to a parent or a teacher before it happens so it doesn't catch you blindsided. If you're like me, my first reaction is to take it personally and either shut down or lash out. And neither of those options is constructive or leads to a good solution. So this section and the next two are directly related to dealing with comments from parents that you do not have a working relationship with. So in response to my earlier question, don't they know I work hard for their child? They get up early so I can plan and do paperwork and do therapy to help their child? The answer is no, (laughs) no. Parents that do not have a working relationship with you, unless your stellar reputation precedes you, do not automatically care about those things about you. They've got their own list from their perspective They care about other things, and hopefully one of those things is the child's welfare. We'll directly address that later on, but whatever you do, let them know that the child is your first priority too. So, within the topic of mindset, here are a few admonitions. Know your vulnerabilities. There are people who direct confrontations and criticisms, etc., just roll off their back. 
However, if you're like me, <laughs> affronts and criticisms are hurtful and painful to hear or read. We can try to disconnect from our emotions, but we cannot eliminate them, so no matter how hard we try. So develop your emotional awareness and learn to temper your emotions with the, with the cognitive needs of the situation. In other words, do not, as best as you can, take it personally. In other words, don't internalize their comments. Keep it as cognitive as possible. Remember, they don't know you, right? You don't have a working relationship with this person. They don't know your heart, your capabilities, and how hard you work to help them. Therefore, plan ahead of time to take a relatively unemotional, unbiased view of what is being said or going on. As best as you can, talk yourself into not absorbing it. Stay cognitively focused. What does this mean in real-life application? It means keep the parent's words in perspective and observe and interpret the parent's verbal as well as nonverbal communication and be aware and in control of your own verbal and nonverbal communications. Emotional stress compromises our ability to communicate effectively. When we're stressed, we're more likely to misread others or send confusing or off-putting signals or nonverbal signals, too. Keep in mind that emotions are contagious. If you are visibly upset, it is very likely to make others upset, making a bad situation worse. Take a moment to calm yourself. Talk to yourself and do what you need to do. Again, observe the parent, listen to the parent, and note your nonverbal signals. Another thing that can be very telling is to be able to recognize the emotions of others and the true feelings behind the words and nonverbal cues they are sending. Work toward learning how to read verbal as well as nonverbal cues. That's exactly what we're going to do now here in Section 3. The nonverbal communications of A, the parent, and B, yourself. So here is A, nonverbal communications of the parent actually really of anyone in the meeting, okay? To help you veer away from the consuming emotional response realm, think and use your powers of observation of verbal and nonverbal details that we SLPs are known for. We are excellent communication observers and analyzers, and this section focuses on the nonverbal indicators. I've done some research on this. Much of the following nonverbal information comes from four sources. An article by Regio and Regio, 2012. A 2012 article by Weissman, The Eyes Don't Have It. An article, online article by the University of Michigan News, 2015, on lie detecting. And a 2008 book that I have called What Everybody is Saying, An Ex-FBI Agent's Guide to Speed Reading People by Joe Navarro. It's very interesting. Nonverbal communication involves a vast array of behaviors that differs from verbal communication in several ways, such as verbal communication is direct and involves the use of a single channel, spoken or written. Nonverbal communication is continuous and ongoing and involves many channels of communication simultaneously. Verbal communication is intentional, while nonverbal communication is spontaneous, and much of it is not intentional. In fact, much of the time, we're not even consciously aware of our many nonverbal behaviors. 
In fact, one could argue that it is impossible to accurately convey emotions without using nonverbal cues. That came from Regio and Regio in 2012. Now, this information helps us to read the parents and others using nonverbal indicators and signals before, during, and after the meeting. Analyze nonverbal communication signals broadly. Don't read too much and do a single gesture or nonverbal cue. Consider as many of the nonverbal signals as you can from facial expressions, body language, which is not really possible online, (laughs) as well as vocal characteristics and their words, which we'll look at closely in Section 4. In general, we'll get specific here in a minute, notice when you walk into the meeting or when they first walk into the meeting, does she appear confident, relaxed, and open, or shy and hesitant, uncomfortable but friendly? or downright upset, angry, or defensive? Does she look at team members and smile or look down? Does she seat herself up to the table or back from the table and does not rest her hands on top of the table? Does she keep her purse in her lap? Does she cross her arms, basically hugging herself, self-soothing? These last three are definite indicators that she does not feel part of the group and is stressed for whatever reason. In addition, Navarro mentions additional types of pacifying behaviors that we do, such as repetitive rubbing the throat area, touching and stroking the face, the nose, the cheeks, lip licking, puffing out the cheeks and exhaling slowly. These types of behaviors are done to try and release calming endorphins into the brain to make the person feel better. So, prior to the meeting, if the parent appears to be stressed in some way, here are, some, here are a few possible reasons. It could be a new experience and she's uncomfortable with the situation and the great unknown as to what will happen. Or she has a sense of not being a part of the group, i.e. that lines and sides have been drawn and she's all by herself. Or she's fearful as to what will be said about her child. Or lastly, maybe she anticipates the recommendations and has a strong conviction one way or another. So if you see these indicators prior to the meeting, rather than just sitting and waiting, you might want to smile and offer her some water. Talk about what a great child she has. Talk about the weather, her new top that she has on, and try to put her at ease. This type of behavior on your part is a brief demonstration of who you are and an indication of your heart. And maybe you just might avoid or lessen a troublesome meeting. Following are some especially telling nonverbal signals that typically involve expression of emotions, and they are divided into four groups. Facial expressions, eye gaze and eye movements, head movements, and gestures. So here's facial expressions. Facial tension, scowling or frowning, a furrowed brow, pursed lips, clenched teeth, All of these indicate stress. We probably could have guessed that. (laughs) Okay. Eye gaze and eye movements. Squinting. And we're not referring to light that's too high or too low. People squint when they do not like you or agree with you. Darting eyes. Darting eyes means that the person feels insecure. Eye glancing directions. Now, unlike what we've been taught previously, Weissman et al. did a study and found that there is no research that indicates that the direction, up or down or left or right, that a person looks reveals their honesty or not. 
Also, there is no research to indicate that just because a person looks you in the eye that they're telling the truth or not. Then on a positive note, raising eyebrows. Raising eyebrows is a quick way to draw attention to the face. It is a gesture of congeniality and an indication the person wants to agree and get along with you. Interesting. Head movements. Sideways glances. Sideways glances denotes uncertainty or the need for more information. Looking down her nose. If she lifts her head and looks down her nose at you, it usually means she feels superior. As far as gestures, tightly laced fingers gripping or hand wringing, possibly indicating sweaty palms, can be interpreted to mean low confidence, high stress, and concern. In the Michigan study that I mentioned above, they found that 40% of those who were lying gestured with both hands as compared to 25% of those telling the truth. Also, scowling or grimacing of the whole face was present 30% of the time in those being deceptive and 10% of the time in those telling the truth. You may wonder why I'm mentioning this about a person saying something that's not true. One of the most tumultuous meetings I was in, uh, there were several other team members there as well, was one where a parent was absolutely adamant about her child being in special services. She stood up, waved her arms, scowled, and yelled. The child was very bright and had great speech and language skills and was doing well in class. Go figure. He was just born into the wrong family, I guess. Turns out the parent's motivation was that if her child was in special ed, she received more government money. This type of despicable behavior is not pervasive, but it does happen. Trust your instincts. Don't dismiss your gut feelings. If you have a sense that something isn't adding up, you may be picking up on a mismatch between her verbal and nonverbal cues. Note inconsistencies. Nonverbal communication reinforces what's being said. Is she verbally conveying one thing and her body language is indicating something else? So for example, does the parent say, yes, I'll agree to what you say, but she's kind of hunched over, both elbows are on the table, her hands are laced tightly and covering part of her face. Her words do not match the nonverbal signals she's giving. This is where heart-to-heart questions come into play. We don't want the parent to leave feeling like she was railroaded or not listened to or genuinely not in agreement with the plan. You can almost bet that that parent will call for another meeting because she went home and thought about it or contacted her best friend or went on Facebook and bad-mouthed the school. Read her body language and deal with her concerns now. I recommend do note the above behaviors before, during, and after the meeting as the parent becomes more at ease and feels more comfortable with the decisions being made you will not only hear a difference in what she says, but you will see a huge difference in the nonverbal indicators, relaxation, positive head nodding, and smiles. Nonverbal indicators are reliable indicators of how a person really feels. Now for part B, your nonverbal communications. What is communicated through your body language and nonverbal signals 
affects how others see you, how well they like and respect you, and whether or not they trust you. We're all familiar with the phrase, actions speak louder than words, and sometimes they do. Let's talk about specifics about your physicality and the importance of it. I've included all of this nonverbal communication because even the most well-chosen words can be undermined and usurped by nonverbal expression. If verbal and nonverbal barbs are coming your way, keep your thoughts bubbling to the surface of your brain rather than your emotions, in part, because it will probably show nonverbally, and you don't want to give that away. Chances are your words indicate, I am here for you and your child. I want the best for your child. Do your nonverbal signals match your words and listening level? Monitor yourself if you can. You'll want to project a heads up in normal position with a relaxed, almost non-expressive, sincere expression. Project non-intensive eye contact with the parent, either open hands or steepling of your hands, and I'll explain what that is here in a minute. Your torso is leaned slightly forward toward the parent, and if they are visible, angle your legs and feet toward the parent. Navarro devotes an entire section of his book on how effective hand movements enhance our credibility and persuasiveness. He says, keep your hands visible and on the table. As you listen, either lightly fold your hands or part slash open them on the table, maybe six or seven inches apart, indicating your openness. Also, he talks about steepling. Although I'd seen the gesture before, I never knew that hand steepling had a label. Basically, steepling is when you spread your fingers on both hands and lightly touch the left and right corresponding thumbs and fingertips. When you do this, it looks like a steeple. He says that, quotes, it is one of the most powerful displays of confidence we can possess, end quotes. It projects, I'm confident in what I'm saying. I'm not being arrogant, overbearing, stubborn, or angry. I am patient and firmly confident in my competence. Doesn't mean I'm opposed to being flexible, but I am confident based on what I know. Now, as the parent, or Marie, that I've named her, talks, look at her and keep your mouth and facial muscles relaxed. Navarro states that, quotes, when it comes to emotions, our faces are the mind's canvas, end quotes. As you listen, a gentle nod may be appropriate, indicating you are listening and thinking about what she has to say, no matter what she is saying. Here's section four, verbal communications. As we all know, quick defensive type reactions can escalate the situation. So we know we need to avoid that. So here are some suggestions. First thing, after Marie makes her disparaging comments, pause for a second or two. Longer than that, it gets uncomfortable. Inhale and take inventory of your nonverbal characteristics. As was mentioned, face and body are relaxed as possible, as much as possible. Do steepling with your hands, angle your body toward the, the parent, and calmly state your case. Calmly? <laughs> Note your vocal characteristics. Your volume, rate, and inflections. Project self-assurance and balanced 
confidence. Too much confidence comes across as egotistical and arrogant. Too little comes across as weak and vulnerable. It's a balancing act. Keep your language focused on the child, not on the parent, not on yourself. If you want to emphasize your experience, then say, quotes, I've worked very successfully with many children similar to your son, and they did very well with this approach, end quote, or something similar. So here's a question. What is the parent really saying, or what is she really asking? Do you perceive any underlying issues? Now, here are some possible reasons for negative parent verbalizations. Put yourself in the place of the other person. Maybe they're having a bad day or a bad week. We never know what preceded our contact time with the parent. By and large, parents want the best for their child. But some parents take that to an extreme, okay? meaning they want their child to be super happy, to be taught by the best teachers at school and on the baseball field, to have the best friends and to have the best speech-language pathologist. Also, are they reacting to something that perhaps maybe you have written and they didn't interpret it correctly or something you said or didn't say or how you said it or something they heard from another person, maybe their child, a teacher, or another parent, that pesky reputation thing again, okay? I've had a few kids that didn't like to work with me. I'm kind of a stickler for homework, and maybe it's that, or maybe it's something else, but they told their mom that they didn't want to be in speech anymore, so you never know. Investigate and see if you can get to the cause of the negativity. Also, maybe they are testing you. Is she going to stand up for what she believes? Does she know her stuff? Is she qualified? And maybe this is it. Maybe they absolutely loved last year's therapist and they miss him or her. You just never know. So here are some things to say or to try to diffuse the situation. Okay? Quotes. If I were in your position, I would feel the same way. Plus, here are some other things to think about, dot, 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 end quotes. Quotes, you're not wrong, but I'd like to add another perspective, end quotes. When you take their side, sometimes they loosen up. Say their name, get eye contact, and smile with your eyes. Ask questions and find things you agree on. Focus and really listen to them. Sometimes when we do that, they are more apt to listen to us. And as you ease into verbal discussion, keep the child or student at the core of your conversation. Again, it's not about you. It's not about the parent. It's about the child or student. Following our three scenarios, here is scenario number one. In an eligibility meeting, the child does not qualify and the teacher sides with the parent. Let's say you and others have evaluated the child, and although he has some errors, or his language scores are within low normal limits, Johnny doesn't qualify. But the parent wants the child to receive services, and the teacher sides with the parent, who she has to interact with the rest of the year. I want to keep that in mind. Here are a few verbal response options. Say, quotes, I hear you and I understand, and if I could, I would love to work with Johnny. He's a great kid, but because of his relatively high test scores, he just doesn't qualify. 
it is unlawful for me or for anyone to place a child in speech when he does not qualify based on lawful standards. I could get in trouble. End quote. Have a speech development age chart handy and for language. Physically show them the child's graph on his protocol and where his abilities lie. Let them know that the children that qualify have a different looking chart. Their scores are very low. They're down here. Your child's scores aren't low. They're up here, which is a good thing. Next, if need be, mention your experience. Quotes, I've tested hundreds of children, and honestly, Johnny is doing quite well. Here's why I say that, blah, 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 end quotes. And lastly, say, quotes, okay, I'd like to know your reasons why you say that, end quotes. And pick up your pen to write them down, okay? If they are valid, let them know you have the child's best interest at heart and that if you want to, there are a couple of tests that could be done to determine the child's abilities in that area. Here's scenario number two. Is the parent's language in direct reference to the child? In other words, is she advocating for her child? If so, her view of what is or has happened with the child is obviously different from your view. With this type of scenario, you just keep the focus of your responses on the child. Here's an example. Let's say that at the annual IEP, the parent says, quotes, Alyssa is not making progress in therapy, so it's a waste of time and I want to pull her out, end quotes. Don't take the bait. Do not internalize the inference that you're not a good therapist. Instead, stay focused on the child and respond calmly. Begin with language that validates what they said and how they feel. Quotes, Marie, I hear you, I understand. And if I were in your position, I might think the same thing. Smile with your eyes. I greatly appreciate you having her best interest at heart. End quotes. During this time, gain eye contact, use her name, preferably first name. It's friendlier. Be authentic and straightforward. Say, quotes, Marie, I too have Alyssa's best interest at heart. I'd like you to hang in there with me because I have another perspective. I'd like you to think about with me. End quote. Remove the focus from them feeling into thinking. Quotes. We're going to continue on here. I just recently started... Or say, I have decided to start using another therapy approach with her. It's fill in the blank. And I've had good success using this approach with other children. It is amazing how every child learns differently. And sometimes I have to try a couple different approaches to see which one works best. And because of that, I'd like to keep her in speech. End quotes. Here's another option. Quotes. You know, Marie, I've been thinking about this, too. You know, some students just need more practice. And I'm sure you don't want her leaving the classroom any more than what we're already doing. That's really not fair to her. But I do believe she would benefit from more practice outside of therapy. End quote. Enlist the parent's help. Involve her in a meaningful way. Involve the parent for the good of the child, for the good of the parent, okay? <laughs> They'll have a better sense of what the child is doing and how the child is doing. And it puts some of the responsibility 
onto the parent. I'll explain some information about how to do this in our last section. But here we go with scenario number three. Is the parent's language in direct reference to you, the therapist? Is her language directly combative, aggressive, and rude? Are they trying to pull you down and elevate themselves, perhaps? Quotes, Johnny comes home and says that speech therapy is too hard, and he doesn't seem to be getting along with you, so I want him changed to a different therapist. End quotes. Let's face it. The surface interpretation is that not every child and parent will like us. But I don't want to focus on that first. First, is what Marie saying true? That statement requires some tactful investigation. Quotes, Oh, I wouldn't have known that Johnny felt that way. Please tell me more. Or, tell me what he says or does because I would like to change that for him. The word because justifies what you're saying and it's hard to argue with that. Also, stay focused on the child and show your heart. There also may be an undercurrent issue. From the child's perspective, maybe he's missing something when he's getting pulled out for therapy. So I need to determine if that's happening. And sometimes it's helpful to contrast the difference between therapy and classroom instruction. Therapy is focused on speech and or language, for example, things that the child is having difficulty with. So, yes, some things will be hard, but we all know if we want to accomplish those hard things, we have to put out some work. Maybe the child doesn't understand why he's in speech and that it does take some effort to improve. Awareness and motivation may be at the core of the matter. Now, here's what not to say. Oh, my, in 10 years, I've never had a child that didn't like me. That's about you. Marie doesn't care about that, okay? She's focused, hopefully, on her child. Also, is the parent projecting? Did she have a difficult time in school and she doesn't want her child to experience the same difficulty? Now, I'm not going to probe into that one, okay? One time, I did have a dad that was projecting that, but he fessed up. We have arrived at Section 5. Constructive Ways to Build a Professional Working Relationship Deliberately and intentionally working toward building a working relationship with parents and others will, I believe, at least limit disparaging comments. In addition to making your professional life and your professional involvement much more enjoyable and successful. Section 5 is focused on practical ideas and suggestions that I've used in the past to build working relationships. This is a process that takes place over time. And as you add some of these low-to-no, time-consuming things to your day, they become automatic, part of your routine, part of just how you do things. The goal, as you know, is to establish a working relationship and Another word for that is trust. I would love for a parent to say, quotes, Oh, Mrs. Beauchart sent that home. It must be important, so let's get it done. Or, quotes, This IEP meeting is not the most convenient time for me, but I know it's probably the only time Mrs. Beauchart has to fit it in, end quotes. Or, hmm, 
Looks like Mrs. Beauchart changed her therapy method. I know she really cares about my son, and she knows what she's doing, so I'm going to trust her on that, end quotes. A working relationship, like all relationships, evolves and grows over time. And as you both focus on the child, the parents get to know you, your heart, your competency, and your work ethic. The bottom line to all this, big word, communication. And I've divided this section into two parts. A is planting communication seeds prior to the eligibility meeting. And I'm using that term eligibility as the first meeting that you have where you disclose your test results and determine if the child qualifies or not. And B, communication at the eligibility meeting and other meetings. A, planting communication seeds prior to the eligibility meeting. I alluded to this earlier, but in this internet and social media age, you never know who an incoming parent has talked to or even read or Googled. Even the most positive parent may come to the meeting with the purpose of determining your qualifications, your credibility, and if you are someone she wants her child to work with, and quite possibly the instruction method she wants you to use. You never know. So to get a jump on this and dispel her concerns as much as possible, do some legwork prior to the meeting. Initiate a personal connection. It can take place in person, person to person, via phone or via Zoom, or leave a phone message or email or text her. A big part of it is that you reached out. It goes a long way toward laying the foundation for your credibility. It is best, however, to directly communicate with her for at least a few minutes. I know that it takes extra time. I I know that, but it can pay off hugely. And if you incorporate it into your routine, it becomes automatic. Now, many years ago, I taught full-time at a university in Southern California. And among other things, I was in charge of the clinic. We had a lot of children and adults come through. And prior to seeing them, we always sat down and did a case history and discussed their child. Okay, so that's what you do in the clinic, not necessarily in the schools. But here's what I learned This insight has stuck with me all these years. Parents want to share what they know about their child with you. Parents want to share what they know about their child with you. They just do. They want to verbalize what the problem is as they see it, what they have done about it, if anything, and what they want for their child. So... Open the door for them to do that. Say something to the effect, quotes, Hello, Marie, my name is Char Beauchart, the speech therapist here at school. I'm evaluating Alyssa and wanted to touch bases with you and get your perspective. End quote. And then either, quotes, I know she's having trouble with her speech sounds. Is there anything I need to know about that? End quote. Or, I know she's having trouble expressing her thoughts. Is this something you've seen through the years? End quotes. You are consulting her. On the surface, that seems obvious and logical. However, in reality, it goes far deeper than that. 
you are laying the foundation for your working relationship. Not only do you get to meet one another, which demonstrates an important part of your work ethic, you've gone out of your way to do so, and hopefully you learn a little more about Alyssa. Also, you are not going into the eligibility meeting as strangers, and in essence, you've already made her a valuable member of the team. As a follow-up at the meeting, early on, after everyone has introduced themselves, etc., say, quotes, Marie, I thought about what you said on the phone. Would you mind sharing what you said? I thought it was so insightful, end quotes. She is walking on a cloud. Her view is valued, and sometimes that is the issue. Her view is not valued, she thinks. And then the teacher may jump in and validate what she said, or, quotes, Oh my gosh, she does that at home? Here's what she does in my class, blah, 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 end quote. Many issues can arise because a parent does not feel valued. You know what happens as a consequence? She listens to us with greater trust. B, communication during the eligibility meeting and other meetings. All meetings contain a captive audience, and you and I can use meetings to our benefit. How we conduct ourselves at meetings helps to lay the foundation of perception, how others see us, and ultimately, how they work with us. I'm going to share experience-based ideas on how to utilize meetings to everyone's advantage. Meetings are not just about sharing information and making decisions and signing forms. They're about relationships and connections. Meetings provide a golden opportunity to show your heart, showcase your professional capabilities, and demonstrate your work ethic. And I haven't talked much about the concept of work ethic. So your work ethic is based on a set of values of discipline and hard work, of which you have gotten spades, okay? You are a hard worker. But it's also about tactfully letting people know your work ethic. And it's about forming good habits like contacting the parent, as I mentioned. That's part of your work ethic. And working with the parent to get homework compliance, that's part of your work ethic. And I'll talk about homework compliance here in a minute. But also applying effective therapy techniques and informing others of the child's improvement. It's also related to getting paperwork done efficiently. Okay, so let me address, briefly address the elephant in the room, paperwork, because I know it's an issue. When I was in the schools, it was for me too. It can permeate and consume our time. So four things about paperwork, okay? One, schedule it into your day. Now, what I did was I scheduled a flex hour prior to lunch so that it gave me a length of time. It was open. I didn't see any kids then, okay, unless I did an eval. I filled that time with either paperwork student in-class visits, meeting with another specialist, um, you know, or as I say, maybe doing, an, you know, an eval or part of an eval. Two, when writing an IEP or an evaluation report, for longer sections, have a separate copy and paste page open on your computer and use it. 
Then quickly personalize the information about the target student so that you can crank through the paperwork. Number three, challenge yourself to type quickly. Time yourself. I would do this, okay? Give yourself, for example, 15 minutes. I'm going to get it done in 15 minutes. If need be, put a do not disturb sign on your door and go for it. Crank it out. Just get it done. Four, who's going to be reading it, if anyone? People in your school? Probably, to a degree. The parent? Maybe. But she'll probably not read it in its entirety. Another SLP? Yes, if the kid moves. An attorney? Only if there's litigation. Keep it in perspective. No one likes paperwork, okay? But it is necessary for documentation. Documentation, that's all it is. IEPs, evals, progress reports, medical, etc. You're not writing a novel, and because you've done so many of these, you should be able to do them fairly quickly. Look at it as a series of sprints, not a marathon. Please do not give the bulk of your time and power away to paperwork. Create a system that works for you. All right, back to the meeting. Here's a few things on developing positive perceptions during the meeting. You know, we know parents and teachers will not remember everything that was said at the meetings. I won't either, for that matter. Okay, most of us, including the parent, will remember a few important points. Most, however, will remember the impressions that were made at the meeting. Impressions includes their perception of you. If you in some way connected with the parent during the meeting, that initiates her positive perception of you. The parent's perception of you will have a lot to do with the success of future parent interactions, including any homework support. The parent will remember, and here's a few things the parent will remember. She'll remember your demeanor, your outward behavior, and how you verbally and non-verbally interacted with others in the group. In addition to your professionalism, for example, the manner you present the information is important. I'm referring not only to your knowledge, but your ability to succinctly zero in and clearly explain the information that's applicable so the parent understands and can relate. Keep the speech path jargon to a minimum. Simplify your words and don't give every detail. Keep an eye on the parent to see if she understands your information. Give concrete examples if necessary. Explain the acronyms and observe how they are emotionally interpreting it. Sometimes parents are hard to read. You may have to ask, quotes, does this make sense to you? End quotes. Or, do you see this in your child at home? I'm not suggesting to be condescending either. Just be clear in your meaning. Also, I think everyone would agree that extra practice over and above the regular therapy meetings can be beneficial. But a big part of the problem is compliance. I can send it, but it doesn't mean it's going to get done. Now, if you have a homework program, then mentioning it and briefly explaining it during the eligibility meeting or during IEP meetings can be helpful. 
It exemplifies your team approach and your work ethic as well. Bottom line, the parent can influence the child's attitude toward not only the speech-language services that we all do, but it can provide support for the homework. Now, following are some points that I would recommend mentioning. Explain how progress is made when we all pull in the same direction. Ask for their help and involvement. Don't just assume that they will do it if you send something home. Thing is, many of them, even the parents that want to help, have no idea what that means and looks like, or what they need to do, or how long it takes, or even what are the benefits of doing it. So share some of that information with them. Emphasize that your child will improve more and more quickly with extra practice, and frankly, with your support. I will send it home in this folder, or I will mail it to you, so let them know how they're going to be receiving it so they can look for it. During therapy, I will show your child exactly what to do. Also, most tasks are easy. I try to send home tasks that your child can do so he can begin to do it consistently. Also, let them know that homework time is minimal. Please do not practice more than five minutes with your child on speech or language. Also, that speech and language homework can be done pretty much anywhere. The ideal is at home in the same place as their other homework. Consider taking a break from doing reading and math and practice some speech and language in between. Also, uh, let them know that you are always available if they have questions. And give them your uh, school email and your school phone. And get their preferred contact information. Let them know that you will be keeping track of what homework is done or not done and how the child does. You are working together as a team for the good of the child. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up here, I would like to mention that if you experience a contentious interaction with a parent and if your administrator is there or not there, if your administrator knows your heart, your qualifications, and your work ethic, that administrator will typically side with you. Administrators, especially principals of all people, okay, are familiar with dealing with difficult situations. So if you have an approachable principal or other type of administrator and you can talk confidentially, I would highly recommend that you do so. They can give you good counsel. I've done that, and it helps. So hang in there. Stay focused on your therapy kids as much as possible, and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.